across the margin. Across the margin podcast. Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine, and deeper into the stories. I am your host, Michael Shields, and although we are, uh, you know, more than halfway through January, this is our first podcast of the year, so Happy New Year to all the listeners out there and Across the Margin readers. Um, we're very excited about 18, I am personally, and, and, and for Across the Margin, we have a lot of fun projects in the works and and we're expecting uh, a big year over here so stay tuned uh for for what we got going on um i can tell you this right now at the website we have some fun stuff um kind of some year-end wrap-ups that um even though as we're working into 2018 it's still still some good material to read including our top 50 albums list of 2017 um some some great choices there, and you know if you're looking for any new music, I think you can easily find it there. Um, we put out our best of list. Uh, we have a best of fiction, we have a best of nonfiction, and a best of arts and culture list that just kind of grabs some of our choice cuts from the year. Um, kind of gives you a good idea uh, if anyone's new to to our pages of of what we got going on there. Um, so those are up. We have a whole bunch of. Uh, new fiction we've 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 dropped some ones that i really think are pretty special recently one i'd like to point you to is um we've published him before it says he goes by nk henry he wrote uh uh this absolutely wicked and engrossing piece of uh fiction called raw deluxe um it kind of reminded me of like an old cormac mccarthy story or, or something like that it's really it's something special and what's what's cool about it too is it it comes equipped with a, a soundtrack every every um section it's pieced off into section it's it's, it's a link to a different song um that kind of sets the mood for for the story which i thought was really cool um so check that out we have a bunch of uh riveting poetry up there as usual and um one of those poems is is by um, actually there's multiple poems from him, uh, Roger uh, Kamenitz, and he who he's he is our guest for today. Um, beyond poetry, uh, Roger is an award-winning uh, poet, author. Actually, I said poet, poet, author, and teacher. Um, he uh, he has a bunch of books. I think it's around ten books, and of his ten books. Uh, the best known is The Jew and the Lotus. Um, it's the story of rabbis making a holy pilgrimage through India to meet with the Dalai Lama. Um, it's his account of their historic dialogue. Uh, it kind of it blew up. It was an international bestseller. Um, it prompted a reevaluation of Judaism in the light of Buddhist thought. Um, there, there was a lot of buzz about that when, when that came out. Um, but the book of his that really drew me in personally was it's called the history of last night's dream um and this is we, we speak on dreams a lot today that's kind of what we're here to do to, to talk about what he refers to as natural dream work um but the history of last night's dream it's it's a cultural investigation of dreams and, and what they teach us it, it delves into the age-old struggle between what we dream and how we interpret our dreams and and and, and just how that has shaped all of Western culture. Um, he discusses ideas such as dreams are not inherently bizarre or meaningless at all, and they can ultimately be tools uh, to a greater understanding of self. And and you know, in in the book and what we discuss here, I apologizes about that siren out there, New York City. Um, Roger elaborates on 
how, how dreams have a healing power, um, which is such a cool thought. And he delves, delves into, um, how, just how this is the case in the podcast. Uh, you know, the book definitely shows us that dreams are not only meaningful, but they, they, they hold truths to who we actually are. Um, another really, really cool thought. So throughout the podcast, we discuss, uh, the methods of, of what, is termed as natural dream work. We, um, we discuss the advantages of not interpreting dreams, but, uh, but rather focusing on feelings and, and the power of images. And we, we, we delve into that pretty deep and, and just a whole lot more. Roger's an amazing person. He's, uh, you know, through all his experiences and, and all his work with dreams and just everything he's learned over the years, he has so much wisdom to, to in part. So, um, I was so glad he was able to join me and, um, you know, I, I, I had, we had to do it over remotely cause he's in, um, in, uh, in new Orleans. Um, and, but so the, the I think the sound it's, it's a little off, but it definitely, you could definitely, um, it's, it, it is beyond worth the listening. It's awesome. Uh, what, what Roger has to teach. So, uh, without further rambling and ado, uh, here is my interview with Roger Kamenitz. Thank you so much for your interest uh, in doing this and, and, and spending some time uh, um, talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Excellent. Um, do you want to just uh, get right into it? I don't want to waste any, any of your time, and I just got, uh, just got a few questions I want to uh, throw at you, if that's okay. Sure thing. Excellent. So first off, let me... Let me say thank you uh, not only for being here, but um, also for your uh, recent contributions to Across the Margin. It was an honor to publish your poems through uh, through our poetry editor, Richard Roundy. Um, I love them both, The Remedy for a Remedy, uh, especially, and um, Satisfaction. They, they're both, both amazing. But um, through publishing uh, your work, uh, it came upon your book, The History of Last Night's Dream, and, and it, it, it floored me in ways and, and really has me thinking about dreams and their significance and usefulness in, in a whole new way. And so thank you for that as well. But um, as a way to get us started, you mentioned that the two poems that we, we published were a part of a larger series of poems um, coming out next year. And uh, knowing these poems intimately, um, I'm curious because you did mention they, that they are influenced by your work with dreams and and i just i'm curious uh how how is that the case um it's a you know like the matrix is uh you know there are a number of uh, threads uh, making up the matrix but uh, one of them has to do with um prose poetry itself you know if you think of the the prose poets that most influenced me starting you know as a teenager uh, rambo and Illuminations, um, and um, also when I was in college, I got interested in Max Jacob, who is a um, real uh, modernist prose poet. I think really important prose poet. And so, since I read French, um, I think I was really influenced in part by those readings. Um, but um, also, both Bembo and, and Jacob were quite interested in the dream. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the prose poem, um, because it, it's kind of suspended, it's like uh, lyrical, but it's also, it also can be narrative, it can mm-hmm. be uh, almost any, it can sort of parody almost any prose form. Um, at the same time, uh, I think because it doesn't have lines, um, the question of the jump or the, you know, the connection between one moment to the next is really um, part of the art of it. Yeah. How do you move from one thing to the next? And so um, I think they're, they're kind of naturally a good way to, um, to get into uh, the imagination mm-hmm. uh, that we have in dreams. So, uh, you know, the term oniric is used, just meaning dreamlike of, yeah. of dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that's sort of more down to earth is, uh, you know, for the last, mm, well, since... I guess it's 1999, so it's been a long time now. I've been writing down my dreams. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the ways I do that is simply to wake up uh, after the dream and write it down. So I used to run to my computer, but in recent years, I, I just do it on my iPhone. Yeah. 
And um, I guess one night, I instead of writing down a dream, I wrote down a poem. And so that was, that was that, related to that dream that evening. No, not okay. not in not 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 at all. And okay. that's the point in the way that that I think the idea of uh, reporting a dream and saying, "Well, here I dreamed this, and here's my poem," really doesn't work. Okay. So, so what the poem attempts to do is is not um, record a dream, but to indicate the flavor, the perfume of the dream through uh, its movement and imagery and the way images work in the um, poem, uh, connecting with each other. Um, so that's really the point. In fact, that's that's a big tip because if you say that you know people think of dream poetry as. Uh, you know, I had this dream, and they somehow tried to record it mm -hmm. as a poem, and I don't think that works too well. So that's more, it's more the influence and, and kind of just the, the, the overall feeling that you maybe drew from that experience you had. Well, it's, it's, it's a consciousness. Okay. So, I mean, for instance, our Tibetan friends will talk about uh, body sense mind as a consciousness. Uh, they'll use the word mind instead of consciousness. So they'll say there's body sense mind, which might be the the mind when you're in your body and in your senses, mm -hmm. which is actually fairly rare for most of us these days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's also dream mind. Mm -hmm. So dream mind is a state of consciousness which is most readily experienced for most people in sleep, which is actually available at any moment. And so they understand it that way, and I think they're quite right. It's something you can tap into consciously uh, as, a, as a waking dream? Yeah, I don't even like the term. I know tap into is a way of saying it, but yeah. I guess I would say to, uh, what I would say is that you move throughout your day, you're moving from one consciousness to another all the time. Mm -hmm. And we notice this, right? Sometimes it's very closed down and narrow into these tight spaces. Sometimes it's very rational. Sometimes we're totally into the future mind mm -hmm. or dwelling in the past or in anxiety, whatever. So sometimes we slip into dream mind for just a moment, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it helps to close your eyes, so it's hard to do when you're driving. But I mean, you know, it, it's like a different consciousness. And I do think that, uh, maybe you know this from your own experience, but when you're in these creative moments, they're much akin to that kind of looser, associational, uh, imagistic, felt um, kind of experience. Um, so that's what I'm trying to, re not recreate, but to... Um, right in and from and, and towards in, in, the, in these works. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it's, um, you know, we were talking a little bit, and I do want to, I have a couple of questions about the history of last night's dreams and some things like that, but to kind of continue with this idea of dreams and poetry, um, you mm -hmm. talked about the intersection of those two, and I was wondering uh, if you could right. speak on that a little bit, how they relate to you personally when you... Uh, when right. You, go on. So, I mean, I've been writing and publishing poetry for a long time. And, uh, I think the first book I wrote, The Missing Jew, came out in 1979, which is a long time ago. And and I'd say that the poems in the beginning were, I was really influenced by objectivists uh, like Charles Resnikoff, and the poetry was very discursive. Mm -hmm. It was very into uh, intellectual play and uh, ideas and, and, and discourse. And so... My immersion in dreams has really led me to this other way of thinking and feeling, which has to do with images. Okay. So that's, that's one key thing. So when I look at poems or look at dreams, I'm really interested in the moments when the image emerges as an event, um, an encounter. And so um, the um, the other piece of this, and uh, you know, I found it for myself by working with people's dreams, is that a dream or really, when we're in the primary imagination, which is, you know, when we're making a poem, or when we're in the dream, they're both examples of primary imagination, mm -hmm. there are events, which we could call, uh, you know, if you use uh, Auden's language, uh, sacred encounters. Yeah. So these are encounters with things or beings. So you might say they're encounters with images and well, technically, they're called imagos, mm -hmm. you know, and that was the personified image. Mm -hmm. And so I'm quite interested in how we make those encounters, how we avoid them. And one way we often do that is to start talking about ideas. So, so you can apply this. I, this is kind of condensed, but um, if you're looking at a poem, for instance, as a movement of feelings, 
you can also see that very often the, the shift, the place where the poem moves away from feeling towards um, discourse or thinking or reference to the world or there's all kinds of things, right? And so you can see the poem as a system of either coming closer to feeling or in some ways stepping back from feeling, okay. uh, which is very much how I look at dreams as well. Oh, wow. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, and you just mentioned... Uh Images and you speak um, a lot in your articles and your books about the the true power of images. I even like how um, you invoke um, George Orwell's advice in your book about writing, when he states that if a writer is not seeing a mental image of the objects he is naming, he's not really thinking. That makes a whole lot of sense to me. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the power of images, because uh, it is something um, that you know, kind of, you go back to uh, quite often. Right. Well, um, the encounter with the image in a poem or in a dream has the possibility of healing. I mean, mm-hmm. um, Wordsworth really, you know, uh, lays this out um, in his um, sort of long autobiographical poem that no one reads anymore, but everyone ought to read. It's called The Prelude. The Prelude, and, um you know, especially the early, the early version, the 1805 version, is really so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And really, what he attempts to do is um, to te- to help us understand the poet's consciousness and how it grows. And it seems to me that's a really useful thing to learn about. Yeah. So, so what he talks about are spots of time, which are actually events. What I call events, they're encounters, mm-hmm. and. For Wordsworth, they're, they're basically from his childhood, but not always. But, and basically, they're strange, uncanny, and often painful moments, like seeing the face of a drowned man being mm-hmm. you know, pulled up out of the lake, yeah. which he saw when I think he was about seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he says is, let's say you have these memories, and we all do, right, that are, that are imagistic, that are images, the face, and, and maybe painful. Right? They're not necessarily pleasant images, okay? And let's say you're in a state of depression or fatigue. You're in a totally different environment. By recollecting those images, your imagination gets fed mm. and stimulated. So his, his analysis really is that imagination can get impaired and it can also be healed. So what... Other people would call, you know, depression, take this pill, you know, do yoga, whatever. Yeah. He's saying, no, it's actually about the imagination, mm. the, the health or sickness of the imagination. And guess what? Imagination feeds on images. Yeah. So by opening yourself to oh, images, wow. by contemplating images, uh, it, for Wordsworth, it would be images in his memory. Um, you revivify or restore the broken imagination. Well, which which and, uh, which which leads to which has a healing power in its own way. It is healing. That is how he understands healing as basically restoring the potency of the imagination by feeding it with strong images. And again, it's not like happy talk. It's not like oh, go remember when you saw the beautiful daffodils. And he does have a poem like that, obviously. (laughs) And he he says that. He says, you know, often, um, uh, as you say, um, I can't remember now, but but basically the line is about going back and refreshing himself by remembering the daffodils that flapped upon the inward eye, he Mm -hmm. says. But that's a little misleading because if you look at at, um, the prelude, and the examples he gives of spots of time, they're almost all kind of harder, quite interestingly. Yeah. Death, horror, or simply uncanny moments that he can't, his quality is difficult to uh, put into discourse, but which retain a hold of his imagination. Well, yeah, I mean, um, that it, I guess it doesn't always have to be good, and in a way, sometimes these images uh, that are um, terrifying or, you know, make us face something, because I know you, 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 um, you, uh, you know, when it comes to nightmares, a lot of times people in the, uh, the West, a lot of parents actually, they, you know, and I think you talk about this in your book, they soothe their children after a bad dream by telling them it wasn't real, but I've 
Brad, you say that this is akin to telling the child that their feelings aren't real. And, and I know you spoke right. uh, once at the New York Times Symposium on behalf of the nightmare. And, and, right. Um, but what was it you said? What, what, what is the power that lies in these bad dreams? Right. Well, first of all, I think that, that, you know, our feelings, all of our feelings are interconnected. They're really all one body of feeling. Okay. And so we tend to separate them out into good and bad feelings, positive and negative. We want to avoid the negative and cultivate the positive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like Emerson says in his essay, Compensation, you can't do that. It's all one stick, you know. Right. One end of the stick is the good, the other end of the stick is the bad. And, you know, so... If uh, you aren't willing to feel terror or fear, which uh, then you're probably not going to be able to feel awe, mm. right? Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to feel pain, you're probably not going to feel joy or love. And and what we what I really my insight would be from working you know with thousands and thousands of dreams is that quite often we realize our vocabulary is so limited that. In the encounter, let's say you have a dream, I'll, I'll pick a common, quite common dream, where some grandparent uh, you loved comes back to you in a dream and hugs you, and, and you know, the feeling there, you could say it's all love and it's all joy, but there's also a tremendous amount of pain in that same moment, yeah. right? It's like, they're here, but they're dead, you know, that, whatever that is, and that that's a way of saying it, but the, the way we feel it is that gets to a deeper place where we realize that we're wrong to say love versus pain. It's really something like pain, love, or love, pain. Yeah. Right? Or we're wrong to say fear and awe. It's really terror, awe. They're on a spectrum of feeling, and it's not quite as definite as our opinion is. So, you know, yeah, in terms of what I was saying about the nightmare, I mean, obviously, um, uh, if a person has a lack of experience of terror, I mean, how many, you know, I mean, I remember having a dream where a homeless guy comes into my house and all of a sudden, he, you know, I kind of was trying to edge him out to the door and suddenly there's a pistol in my throat, mm. you know. And in that moment, I'm feeling this incredible energy of terror, right? And it's a really valuable feeling that I need to feel. The dream is bringing it to me. It's bringing it to me because, um, yeah, in waking life, I'm, I'm taking care not to have those, those kinds of experiences, right? Mm-hmm. But I've accumulated a debt, right? You know, like there's a way in which I'm underfunding fear, right? I need to have fear because fear is part of the economy of the soul. It's, it's, it's just as necessary as any other feeling. Wow, absolutely. I like the idea of the economy of the soul. And you know, I, I was thinking, I was talking to someone recently about uh, the pain when you do lose somebody. And, and and the idea that we got into talking about is how uh, as painful it is to think about them. I mean, the more you shut out those thoughts and, and not experience that pain, the more you lose them. So there, so in, in that idea, there's there is something gained from, uh, you know, it's I like the idea that they're all one experience and and, and, and that, but you did mention that you, um, you know, wouldn't work it. You working with uh, thousands of people at this point uh, with, well, I, I guess, dream clients is kind of uh, what, what we can call them, but acting as a sort of spiritual director. And, and that uh, the article um, was the wild medicine of dreams. It mentions. Yeah. Uh, well, mm-hmm. that's great, by the way. I, I mean, I'll be sharing it with um, with this as well. But uh, that you don't interpret dreams, but you you bring them back to life. Uh, how is how is this accomplished? And and how uh, what is the benefit in reviving a dream as opposed to interpreting a dream? Right. So you know, most people think you know we're really kind of in this post Freudian era, and even though. Most everything Freud said about dreams has been totally discredited. Yeah. You know, from his basic thesis that dreams protect sleep, uh, which he himself realized after World War One must be incorrect. You okay. know, because people were shell shocked and having horrible dreams yeah. and they weren't protecting their sleep. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Um, so he had to revise his theory even then. But but everything Freud was saying about dreams really is based on what I would call the school of Joseph, which is that dreams are meant to be interpreted. 
Okay. So it really has sort of biblical roots, right? There's basically the school of Joseph. But there's also the school of, of Jacob, his father, who dreams the ladder. Mm-hmm. And there's no interpreter there. He wakes, and the world has changed. Mm. He says, wow, this place was awesome, and I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, dreams can directly change our consciousness without the need of interpretation. Mm. Simply by experiencing more deeply the feelings in our dreams, the medicine in the dream can, can affect us. In fact, when we interpret the dream, we also tend to, it's sort of like, I say in the article, I think I said this, it's like the difference between, you know, as if you had a prescription and instead of taking the medicine, you read the label. Yeah. That's what interpreting is. Okay, okay, yes, no, that makes sense. So you got to take the medicine, and, mm-hmm. and I do too. If I'm working with you, I have to take it too. Yeah. In other words, I try to feel the feelings in your dreams. So together, we bring the dream to life. What, what we really do is, uh, it's kind of, you know, simple in a way. I mean, you simply read your dream, you slow it down, yeah. uh, you read it once, and then I go back and we go over it again, and I stop you. I'll say, well, wait a minute, right there, you said you saw this, nine-foot-long man lying on the road, and you just drove by. Okay, so can we go back for a minute and look at this nine-foot-long naked guy lying by the side of the road? You know, could you get out of your car and come a little closer and see what you feel? You see what I'm getting at? So we kind of reenact the dream and also look at other possibilities. Oh, wow. That's... that's... And by... Go on. You know. So, so a dream... In a dream, when you think about this... Um, Duration and proximity, um, in other words, time and, um, I'm sorry, yeah, time and space and feeling are really the dimensions of the dream. So I say a dream has kind of like five dimensions, four of space, time, and one of feeling. But really, more accurately, it's space-time feeling because if you get closer to someone, you're going to feel more about that person. Mm-hmm. So let's say in your dream there's a guy in the corner of the room and you think, oh, he doesn't like me. And then you move on. If I stop the dream and I say, okay, could you walk closer to him? Your feel, if you really get into it, your feeling starts to increase. Maybe what you begin to feel is fear, for mm-hmm. instance. You're saying he doesn't like you, but the, real, the reality is he makes you feel something you don't want to feel. In this case, it might be fear. Yeah. So you see that by changing the proximity, bringing you closer, it also amplifies the feeling, in this case, fear. So I'm just illustrating that yeah. space, time, and feeling are all interconnected in dreaming. Wow, that's, that's And also in waking experience, by the way. I mean, it's not really that different. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're kind of, you know, we're imagining most of what we're seeing anyway. Absolutely. It's all, it's all, it's, yeah. it's, 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 we're kind of creating our reality in a way. And yeah, no, I think you describe it as um, what, what you, what you tend to do, you know, as a, kind of like a wilderness guide who walks people through the natural terrain of dreams, which I think is a, a, a beautiful thought in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and working with dreams, um, helping, as you say, the traumatized face their trauma, the quiet to find their voices, the mourners complete their mourning, um, you know, old people come to terms with, with death, uh, takes a great deal of training and education. And, and while I'd like to point the listeners to, um, you know, the history of last night's dream for more, the book, if for more in-depth answer to this question, I was wondering if you could speak on... Uh, a little bit um, on your journey to to becoming an expert in in natural dream work. Um, right. How, can can you let us in a little bit on how, how you um, how you got here? Yeah, I mean, I, I I although I've dropped out of two or three graduate programs, I'm I'm actually really into being a student mm-hmm. and looking for teachers. So I've had some amazing teachers in my life, and um, on this particular journey. One of them was a, a sort of mystical Kabbalist in Jerusalem named Colette Abuker Muscat. Yeah. And she, she taught me the power of visualization. And then I met this guy who's sort of an intuitive dream worker. He had some training. His name was Mark Bregman. I met him in Vermont. So I studied with him for about 10 years. And um, at this stage, at a certain point, about four or five years ago, I kind of 
stopped being a student mm-hmm. and started being a teacher of other people. So I have like uh, seven or eight people that I'm guiding in terms of their, but also doing this work. And um, I guess that's when I began to formulate natural dream work uh, as a way of describing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot from these two teachers, but I also learned, I mean, most of what I learned would be from my clients' dreams, by, uh-huh. by being in their dreams. Because mm-hmm. re- the dreams also teach you. Um, you know, I, 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 um, I remember one of my colleagues, and she, she's also a client, had a dream where this teacher said to her, actually in the dream the teacher was me, weirdly enough, but the teacher said, read the images. And I thought that was a really succinct way of saying what we're doing. Yeah. You know? um, so how do you read images? You don't, um, this gets, it's a wonderful paradoxical thing, right? Because I'm saying, don't turn them into ideas or messages. Yeah. But really what it means is encounter the thing. Like if you see a lion in your dream, encounter the lion and tell me what you feel. Right? Mm-hmm. Don't go looking up in a book what a lion symbolizes, because in the frickin' dream, it wasn't symbolizing anything. It was right there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't mean something else. It is what it is. Right. The way we talk about our dream experiences, you know, based on really, I think, the overlay of Freud, is really weird. Like, if you're walking in a redwood forest and you looked up at a redwood tree yeah. and you felt how awesome it was, you wouldn't say, I wonder what that tree means. Yeah, you wouldn't look for any other reason. You wouldn't look for something else. That's a good point. Absolutely. Wouldn't that be weird? Yeah. No, it's completely But we do that with dreams all the time, with dream experience. Well, maybe that's a mistake. Maybe we should just encounter them and feel them more deeply. That's what I'm trying to get people to do. And then it kind of answers itself. Usually the client will say, oh, I'm feeling, you know, this beauty or I'm feeling... This pain, you know, the, very often images are mirrors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, the images that come up in our poems or in our dreams are, in a way, images of self. We have reflections of our own. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like say a guy dreams of he's flying a kite mm-hmm. and then the a kite flies away and it's up in a tree and it's all tangled and broken, you know, if you say, what does that mean? It's kind of the wrong question. But if I just say to the guy, okay, show me what it, you know, show me what this looks like with your body. Right? Mm-hmm. And so he does this little pantomime of being a broken kite, you know? Yeah. And, I, and then I'm saying, well, what are you feeling now? And boom, you know, you get how he's broken and in pain. And, you know, it's like, it's, what does it mean? What does it symbolize? It's a stupid question. Yeah. No, that, that makes complete sense to me. And I mean, you do say, um, and I've, I've seen, I've read it multiple times, that dreams are true. And they, and it's kind of what you're speaking about here. And they reveal us to ourselves. How, how would you, um, could you explain just that, you know, terse line right there? Dreams are true. Dreams are truing also, I would say, the way you true a compass. So, so dreams correct us by showing us, by, by the givens that they give us, mm-hmm. if we accept them. You know, our mind works really quick to distort the experience and make stuff up about it. Story making is going on all the time. But if we can actually just accept the raw experience as it is, you know, that's why I'm pro-nightmare. If that's, if that's what your dream gave you, yeah. accept it, yeah. right? Face it. Um, but um, it will initiate a process of healing in us. It will help us feel whatever it is we need to feel. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not being mysterious. You know, the healing deepens us, obviously. The, you know, the, the, there's this... Uh, the ability to feel more is the ability to have more relationship with others. Mm-hmm. Uh, to love more, yeah. um, to, to be more connected to other people. Yeah, have empathy and be able to uh, understand people more. That can lead to more connection. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, I would like to just say to the listeners, too, we kind of breezed over a little bit, but when you do um, delve into the history of last night's dream, the uh, uh, when they get into um, 
you know, your 10-year apprenticeship with Mark Bregman, who, uh, it's just, it's really fascinating, uh, the people you've learned from me. We met him, um, in Vermont. He was a former postman. They met by accident. The, just the whole process of, of what he learned from Mark is, is highlighted in the book. It's remarkable. Same thing with Colette, um, 87-year-old mystic. Um, she's got some wild stories, uh, from when she was a child, uh, uh, her, that one, you know, there's one where her mouth was taped and as a youth for a certain reason, um, and what that she learned from that. Actually, you know, you you uh, you end up meeting um, with Maury uh, from Tuesdays with Maury, and I'm just kind of giving a couple tidbits from the book because I, I really, I it just it's it's a remarkable piece of work, and so um, definitely check that out. Um, in your book, and this is towards the opening, you speak of, uh, um, you know, learning to dream and, and that you can dream with purpose. And, um, you know, and I know you learned from Mark that, that uh, for a dream to change your behavior, you must treat it as if your actions in the dream are real and, and meet, um, you know, meet those, meet those actions, and especially the ones that are ethically objectionable. I was wondering if you had a tips, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, for us that, for those of us that desire to, to dream with purpose and, and how we can better, uh, treat dreams as if real and, and learn from that. Well, I think, I think that, um, one thing I'd say is, you know, <laughs> I'll plug our website, please, the natural, the natural dream.com yep. because there's lots of tips and other folks in this journey who are writing and practicing mm-hmm. and there's a lot to learn there but um, the um, you know really I want to say that I, I learned so much from Mark and then I, I basically had to separate from him because the way he was talking about um, uh, what he called pathology really ultimately didn't make sense to me mm-hmm. um, and so I also, you know, I, he, he was, it was kind of marking people in a way so that they were stuck. And so I, I really, I changed that. I mean, for myself, I speak of conditioning. Okay. Because if you, if you learn the behavior, you can also unlearn it. Whereas it, it, he was almost treating it like sin, you know, like if you had this, it was, it was almost impossible to not get away from it. So... So that's one difference, but but basically, um, uh, first of all, begin by writing down your dreams. You know, you're asking how to, how to work with your own dreams. Yeah. You know, obviously, the first step is to write them down and look at them as honestly as you can. Um, I would say, if you're doing it for yourself, if you can, pay less attention to the narrative okay. and more attention to the images, mm-hmm. which is kind of. But I would also say if you're reading a poem, yep. you know, yeah. you know like Back to that you're reading one of my poems or one of your, you know, anyone's poems, can you pay a little more attention to the images and less to the meaning? Mm-hmm. Because the meaning will come to you more profoundly if you feel the images, yeah. read the images. So, so this is what I, the first advice, don't pay so much attention to the story. Mm-hmm. The story is usually nonsense. The story, in fact, is usually an habitual lie that you tell yourself story you tell yourself about other people um, go to the encounter in, in every dream there's, there should be an event it could be an encounter with a person or an encounter with a thing you know, mm-hmm. it could be an image or it could be a person and focus on what you feel if if you can if you're far away or you're like you're seeing a person on television you're having one of these dreams where you're like looking down at a great distance can you just as an exercise kind of move closer mm. to the action? You know, there's a huge difference between dreaming, you're in the back row watching a play and actually being on stage. The dream wants you to be on the stage. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, in order to get closer to the feelings, you ought to sort of have to observe. And that's another thing I would ask you to look at is, what is my position in relationship to the action or events in the dream? Yeah. Am I usually an observer or am I in the action? And if I'm usually an observer in the dream, am I also usually an observer in life? Hmm. Am I one who stands apart and watches stuff happen or am I engaged 
in relationship. Mm. You know, so dreams can, you know, honestly, whatever we do in dreams, we probably do in waking life. You know, maybe not in the same way. You know, I once had a client who he dreamed he was at a party and he told people he's an architect. Mm. Um, well, he wasn't. And I said, he said, well, it's just a dream. And I said, no, the fact is that you lie so casually in that dream. <laughs> I'm wondering if you do that in a different way in waking life. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know, but I'm asking a question. Mm -hmm. The dream asks the question, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, if I'm lying or if I'm stealing stuff in a dream, do I do that in waking life? How do I do it in waking life is really the right question. Yeah. Yeah, that's another way you can kind of come to a, more of an understanding of, of self through these dreams. And I, I like you, you, you had a line, and I, f I forget exactly where I come from, but they were talking about dreams and just it's like being alive twice, you wrote, and that, that affected me. That, right. Right. That was yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. Oprah liked that line. Oh, did she? Yeah, I saw, I saw that, yeah. um, uh, that our future president was giving, uh, really enjoyed this book. Yeah, well, I got to be on her radio show. Oh, it was cool. really kind of interesting because she gave me one of her dreams to interpret or to work with. Oh, really? Uh, was it on the radio show? You actually discussed her dreams? Yeah, well, they kind of sprung it on me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fun. Well, then, since she got a chance to spring it on you, one thing that I noticed personally is um, I, I would say the majority of evenings I wake up and I... I I don't recollect or I, I can't assume that I wasn't dreaming. Is there a way for to, because I mean, just after reading all this, I'm, I'm completely absorbed and get, getting in touch with these images and, you know, their feelings. Right. And I just, I don't dream as often as I, I guess I'd like to. Okay. So I, I kind of described that in the beginning of the book, but I'll. Okay. Um, I might have glanced over it. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but that's fine. But, but I'll just say, you know, for now that, um, don't be too strict about what you consider to be remembering a dream. Okay. For instance, maybe you just remember a word, or maybe you just remember an image. Mm -hmm. So write the image down, write the word down, and write the date down, mm -hmm. and next time you'll probably remember a little bit more. In other words, it, it kind of like, it's just basically you got into the habit of not remembering dreams. Yeah. So you can, it takes a little while to get in the habit of remembering them, but it just takes a little while. You have to be a little patient with it. Uh, pretty quickly, if you pay attention every night, and literally discipline yourself to write down whatever you remember, no matter how brief. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then if you dwell on that, let's say you remember a word, okay, and just dwell on the word, or you remember an image. Yeah. Just dwell on the image throughout the day when you sleep. That will stimulate more dreams and... Uh, something more will come from it. Yeah, I, I could see how the more you focus in on it, kind of the ball, once you get the ball rolling type thing, I, I definitely uh, I want to get that going. Um, as, as the history... Uh, go on. I'd say another tip is Please. to remember one of your former dreams that you do remember okay. and dwell on that during the day. Just, just for a few moments, um, every couple of hours, just remember it. Remember the images. Oh. That will often stimulate nutrients as well. Feed, I could feed it as well. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate that on a personal level. Um, at the end of the history of last night's dream, this is no spoiler or anything, but you're still kind of questioning, is the, dr is, is the dream real or is real real? And you state that there is no single answer as you keep moving between them um, and, and those states and, and you know, and, the, and, and you discuss this is the path of dreams and of poetry, and, and it's a path between reality and soul, um, which the, right. uh, your discussions about soul in the book are fantastic as well and how dreaming is soul. But uh, I found these ideas amazing, and you also you quote Whitman discussing right. how, how folks expect the poet to indicate right. the path between reality and our souls, and I think this is an excellent lead-in as that book concludes into the project you're working on next and I was wondering just you know we could know a little bit more about that project and what you're looking toward to uh, convey uh, you know with right. with the project and, and what we have to look forward to really thank you well I, I guess the, the project uh, the poetry project um, is you know which has now gotten way out of 
I mean, there's like 160 of these poems. Oh, really? Um, oh, I'm yeah, like it's kind of nuts. But <laughs> um, the the project is to take seriously um, the events in primary imagination and to show that they have their own logic rather than to write poetry that's, quote, relevant to our times. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of our poetry, you know, in our current moment is wonderful, but it's basically referencing or writing on commentary or opinion um, about what's going on in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I get the urgency of that. Yeah. But since other people are taking care of that, mm-hmm. I, I thought I'd go in some a really different direction and say, you know, yeah, you wake up in the morning and you read the news and, and it's over, you know, we're in this era right now where it's like overwhelmingly consuming our consciousness, you know, yeah. to the point where it's driving people crazy. I Absolutely. Think. It's affecting people's um, mental health for, for, for Ernest. Say what? It's, it's affecting people's mental health for certain. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's deliberate. You yeah. know, it's, it's... Yeah, that makes you sense. Know, but, you know, but... So what I want to do is say, yeah, but I have this resource inside of me, this dreaming, and this dreaming actually is much more of who I am. At core, it's, as you said, you know, it's closer to soul. Yeah. It is, you know, I guess if I would speak back to Whitman, the path from, you know, between reality and the soul is the reality of the soul. And what is the reality of the soul? Dreaming is like indicating the reality of the soul. Because, you know, when we dream, we're at our most idiosyncratic, our most personal, mm-hmm. our most you know, we can touch into the deepest feelings that we have. And it's like a protest in a way. But if you see what I'm saying, my poems are protesting making so-called waking reality the measure of poetry. Mm. Right? Yeah. I think William said something similar. You know, look what passes for the news. You know, you won't find it in the newspapers, but you'll find it in despised poems. So, so... While my work is nothing like Williams, I, I guess what I'm affirming is the reality of inner experience and the logic. Uh, in one of the poems, I talk about dream logic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one more piece I want to add, if, if I may, which is that Whitman, Whitman I, I did some more research on Whitman since, you know, I wrote that book you're quoting from <laughs> 14 years. Yeah, ago, it's, so. it's not recent. <laughs> it's recent in my world, but it's not a recent release, no. No, it's not that. It's just, it's basically, uh, I, I, I'm in this whole other place now. You know? Yeah, totally. Uh, which is fine. Yeah. You know, it's not that it's unconnected. Yep. But one of the things I found with Whitman was, you know, he was doing dream poems hmm. before he wrote Song of Myself. And in fact, there's a poem of his called The Sleepers, which you can find in the 18, you know, the 1855, is it 1855? The leaves, of, the first leaves of grass. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sleep. Well, have you ever read that poem, The Sleepers? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, writing, I'm actually writing a note to myself right now. Well, it's this really beautiful poem where, like, he's sort of hovering around, and he enters into the consciousness of various people as they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly coming, you know, if you look, I looked at some of the research on the poem, it's coming out of his own dream experience. So it's in dreams that Whitman learned to understand that he could become anybody. Yeah. That um, he could pass out of his body and become the other person. Inside wow. um, of myself, he says something like, you know, um, I do not ask how the wounded person feels. I myself become the wounded person. Hmm. And then he illustrates it. He becomes this fireman whose chest has been crushed. And he basically takes you inside there, becomes that person, and then dies. It's like this totally amazing, wow. uh, almost shamanistic uh, move right at the heart of American poetry. So, because what, what, I mean, what does speak to this moment is that our capacity to imagine, to imagine ourselves more deeply, is also a capacity to imagine others more deeply yeah. and to enter into their experience. Which I, that, think, I think the yeah. word I use, I'm sorry to drop, that I use most often in, in a lot of these podcasts is empathy. And I feel like if you're able to. Uh, right. Pass into these people in this dreamlike state. You, you, you can grow, you know, a, a deeper understanding of, of what people are really going through. Whitman didn't think democracy could work unless we learned how to do this. 
Yeah. That, and he's right. Yeah, I, I was going to say, we, that makes tons of sense to me, yes. If we can't learn to love and enter into everybody else's experience, and that means everybody, you know, across political lines, racial lines, yeah. religious, ethnic, whatever, genders, um, if we can't do that, then democracy really, he didn't think democracy could work. And I think we're seeing an illustration of that, you know what I mean? Not to be too topical, but, yeah. but I think that's what's happening. Of course, it's a failure. It's a failure of imagination. That's that's such a good point. That is amazing. I I, I actually really like that we we kind of reached went went to that place because that's something I, I think about so often. It's it's people. You know, we're not. There's a lack of connection, and there's there's a strong divide, and it's because we're not completely understanding fully, or or there's walls up mm-hmm. for various reasons. I mean, what I want people to have if they read these poems, the the is the experience of moving from image to image yep. and being able to feel a hidden connection that defies, you know, waking logic. Yeah. Because I think that awesome. helps people stretch, you know, feed their imagination. Fantastic. And a lot of a lot of the poems are really rooted in strong images. So yeah. that's yeah, my yeah. hope for them. Even the ones uh, that, that we released, I mean, some of... Uh, the, the there's one line um, about being underneath an umbrella and the weight of, of Africa. I, I'm, the line's slipping me, but it, I, it really affected me. Um, how long do it sounds like you have a you have a lot of it completed? How long do we have to wait? Is that is this being released this year? Um, I don't know. I have um, I I don't know. I'm, okay. I'm not quite ready to uh, send it out. Sure. So you know, and it always takes at least a year after that, you know, but um, I have at least one publisher interested in, I'm not really sure where it's, where it's going to land, but right. um, it's going to get out there. Cool, good. Well, we have a little taste of it at Across the Margin right now, and I thank you for that, and I, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to talk to us here today. It's, it's There's really, the book, and I, I know it's, you know, a lifetime ago for you uh, in a lot of ways, but there's so many, it, the wisdom really affected me, the stories within the stories are, are amazing um it, you know I, I just i was really enlightened and 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 you know and through what you said here today the same thing and there's there's i'm kind of coming to the realization of the the power that dreams have to heal and you know that they can help us learn more about ourselves and to ultimately grow and and i love the idea of dreams um as another tool to help us help us evolve and grow and hopefully grow together as we spoke about so it was an honor to speak with you roger thank you so much thank you michael it's great excellent